Welcome to the Best of the Left podcast with clips today from NPR, Counterspin, The Onion Radio News, Le Show, Point of Inquiry, and The Colbert Report. My guest is New York Times columnist Tom Friedman. He's written a new book called Hot, Flat, and Crowded, why we need a green revolution, and how it can renew America. Hot refers to global warming, flat to the global economy that has put the American middle class in competition with workers around the world. Crowded refers to rapid population growth. Friedman says hot, flat, and crowded have converged to tighten energy supplies, expand the extinction of plants and animals, deepen energy poverty, strengthen petrodictatorships, and accelerate climate change. Friedman has won three Pulitzer Prizes for his work with the New York Times. His best-selling books include From Beirut to Jerusalem and The World is Flat. Tom Friedman, welcome back to Fresh Air. Now, I was reading your book last Wednesday night while I was listening to the Republican convention. So as I was reading your thoughts on ending our oil addiction, I heard Rudy Giuliani lead a chant of drill, baby, drill. (laughs) And as I listened to everybody chanting, drill, baby, drill, at the Republican convention, I was wondering, what will Tom Friedman have to say about that? So what do you have to say about that? Well, I started to imagine a column where um, the Saudi, Russian, and Venezuelan observers at the Republican convention were watching this. And what would they be saying to each other? They would be up there in one of those skyboxes, high-fiving each other. It is happy days are here again. Drill, baby, drill. Because what basically Giuliani uh, was leading that crowd into saying is, let's stay addicted to oil. And boy, that is the best news in the world for the Venezuelan, Russian, and Saudi delegates. They couldn't have scripted a chant like that better themselves. Why? Because basically, what is it that they want? They're looking for the United States to remain focused on fossil fuels um, and not throw everything, and I mean everything, Terry, into innovation around clean energy technologies and a clean energy system. You know, when I think about that drill, baby, drill mantra, Terry, you know what I'm reminded of? It's as if that Republican convention on the eve of the birth of the Internet and the personal computer was up chanting, let's stick with IBM Selectric typewriters. IBM Selectrics forever. Type, type, type. Okay, we're on the eve of a new technological revolution. It's as if on the eve of the PC and the internet, the entire convention was standing up and chanting for IBM Selectric typewriters. What a wonderful bridge to the 20th century. Well, I'd love to hear your brief takes on where the candidates stand on energy. So let's start with John McCain. Well, you know, I'm very disappointed in John McCain, I have to tell you, Terry, because uh, uh, he's someone I respect uh, uh, as, a, as a leader, as a political figure, and someone who, as I thought about this campaign, 
before it began, I thought, wow, this is great. We're, for the first time, we're going to have two green candidates. And I don't think that anymore. Um, there has been a bill pending before the U.S. Senate for the last year. It's been voted on or attempted to pass eight times. This gets a little technical, but it's very important. It's a bill to extend the production and investment tax credits for wind and solar energy. So if Terry Gross wants to start a company to put solar panels up, you would get this tax credit that would make it enormously beneficial for you to do that. Or if Terry Gross wanted to start a wind company, you'd get this production credit. What's happening is on December 31st, the existing tax credits are going to expire. And for the last year, the U.S. Senate has been trying to pass an extension of these tax credits. And it has failed now eight times. And all eight times that bill was voted on, John McCain failed to show up, including one time when he was actually in Washington, D.C., and wouldn't come to vote, and it failed by one vote, 59 to 40. And that is very disappointing to me, especially since the biggest concentrated solar project in the world right now is on paper, ready to go, outside of where, Terry? Phoenix, Arizona. It involves something between 1,500 and 2,000 jobs, as much steel. These are big manufacturing blue-collar projects as the Golden Gate Bridge. And yet John McCain did not show up one time. Obama showed up three times and voted in favor. McCain did not show up once. That's one disappointment I have. Second disappointment is he supported a lifting of the federal gasoline tax for the summer driving season, which is such a absurd, ridiculous giveaway of federal tax dollars to encourage the worst kind of behavior, summer driving, which would only drive up demand for oil and make us more addicted. And lastly, he has been out, I'm really sorry to say, really misleading the American people, making them stupid by telling them that if we just drill, drill, drill today, your gasoline price at the pump will come down today. And therefore, if Obama doesn't say drill, drill, drill too, he is for raising your gasoline price at the pump today. It is bloody dishonest. It is making people stupid. And frankly, I find it disgusting at this critical moment. Well, you have strong feelings. <laughs> um, what about Barack Obama? What are you hearing from him about energy? Um, you know, I, I, what I feel comes from Obama is uh, all the right words are there. I read his website, um, his energy platform. When he speaks, he does speak in these terms uh, of a transformative energy revolution and having it be the foundation of a new American industry and more jobs. But I don't feel like it's the core of what he's about. I don't feel it's really central. I, I feel like it's a box he's checked, you know, along with health care and immigration. So, you know, I, I, I give him, uh, you know, high marks for, I think, understanding the importance of the issue. But I, I, I don't give him very high marks for, for real passion or talking really honestly about what we're really going to need to do if we're going to lead this revolution. Let me quote something that you've written. You've said, it's more important to change your leaders than your light bulbs. What do you mean by that? What we need, Terry, to solve this problem is like in the IT revolution. We need 100,000 innovators in 100,000 garages trying 100,000 things, 100 of which will be really promising, 10 will be workable, and 3 will be the next Google. How do you trigger that? Well, the only way you trigger that, in my view, is if you have a market. 
um, and we have a market, but that market's got to be shaped with the right price signals and the right standards, right, rules and regulations. And basically my argument is that um, it's leaders who write the rules. They're the ones who pass the tax law, the carbon tax, the gasoline tax, raise it or lower it. They're the ones who write the rules for energy standards and efficiencies. And only if you get the rules right in the market so it produces fuels from heaven, that is clean fuels, not fuels from hell, uh, dirty fuels, you're really not going to have this explosion of innovation that we need. So, so, so that's so, why so, I say... So you're not discouraging us from using energy-efficient light bulbs and appliances, but with everything we can do as individuals, it's not enough. You're saying we need a leadership that will have the right energy policies to create a green energy future. So, exactly. So you, you really stress taxes and incentives, taxes on oil and incentives for alternative energy. And um, why, why is that such a centerpiece of what, what you think is, is really essential to the future? Well, it, it goes back to um, you know, one of the central arguments here, which is that this is a huge scale problem. This is the biggest industrial project to try to move from a dirty fuel system. And that's what we have now. We have a dirty fuel system based on coal, oil, and natural gas. And Terry, it's a system, and it works really well. Six blocks from your studio, there's a gasoline station that will fill up your car for $3 a gallon or $4 a gallon, whatever it is today, okay? And that system works really well. If we want to replace that. That is a huge scale project. And if you don't shape the market, all right, to give you the kind of innovation at scale that we need, you've really just got a hobby. I like hobbies. I used to build model airplanes. I play golf. I don't believe in trying to work with others to save the world as a hobby. Monday finds you like a bomb. It's been Finally, speaking of standards, if you watch enough TV, you've probably seen commercials for the climate change advocacy group We Can Solve It, which is affiliated with Al Gore's Alliance for Climate Protection. One place you apparently can't see their advertisements, though, is on ABC's 2020. Their group has launched a campaign to ask ABC to allow them to buy time on the Friday night news magazine, and that petition has been signed by over 200,000 people. ABC's rationale for refusing the ad is downright strange, according to the Alliance, ABC explained that their guidelines state that, quote, national buildings may be used in advertising provided the depictions are incidental to the advertiser's promotion of the product or service. Given the messages and themes of this commercial, the image of the Capitol building is not 
incidental to this advertising, please replace the image with one that is not of another national building or monument, close quote. Of course, the climate group included the Capitol building in the ad because, well, that's kind of where laws are made. It's hard not to think of another bit of context here. The co-host of ABC's 2020 is John Stossel, one of the few major media figures who remains a so-called climate skeptic. So ABC will allow an anchor to use the public airwaves to purvey misleading, unscientific opinions about climate change, but a group taking the opposite position can't buy an ad on the very same show. With taxes on gasoline, that puts an extra burden on people who are struggling to get by. It makes it difficult just to get to work. So does a tax on gas unfairly burden um, the working class? Absolutely, and which is why I believe it should be revenue neutral. Um, And that is that we should tax what we don't want, which is people consuming fossil fuels. We should raise taxes on that, and we should lower taxes on what we do want, which is people working, which is why whatever tax increase we impose on oil, coal, or natural gas, we should take off on the other side from people's uh, weekly payroll deduction. To me, it should be revenue neutral, or, or if not revenue neutral, you know, revenue neutral for all but the wealthiest Americans. Now, you offer Denmark as a country that you visited that you think got it right a while ago. What did they do that's right? Well, basically, you know, after the 1973 war um, and the first Arab oil shock, let's look at what America did and what Denmark did. You know, what we did was say, wow, we've got to really take on this issue. So, um, you know, beginning with President Ford and President Carter, we said we're going to double the fuel efficiency of American cars from uh, – is about 13 miles per gallon then to um, I believe it was 27.5. And uh, oh, we're going to do that over 10 years. And we did that. And we were so successful in doing that, Terry, that we helped break OPEC in the in the late 80s and early 90s and really crater the price of oil. Well, that worked out so well that Ronald Reagan, when he came along, said, uh, that's enough of that. And he ripped off the solar panels that uh, Jimmy Carter put on the White House roof. They were recently auctioned online uh, from a government warehouse. And um, he put a stop to all that regulatory efficiency. And we just kind of stopped. Um, In fact, we have not raised our fuel efficiency standards. We didn't raise them for um, basically 30-odd years until just last year. Now, Denmark, by contrast, um, well, they fortunately discovered some oil and gas in the North Sea, but that wasn't the key. They basically put a huge tax on gasoline. For a while, they said people couldn't even drive on Sunday. 
they imposed a CO2 tax. Actually, if you go to your electric bill in Denmark, you can actually see a CO2 tax down there. And um, they uh, invested in huge amounts of energy efficiency, new systems to basically capture the heat from burning coal and from incinerating waste products and use it for home heating. Um, They did a whole series of efficiency steps and taxes and incentives, the net result of which was what? Their economy must have been crushed, right, Terry? Unemployment in Denmark today, 1.6%. Oh, but their companies must have absolutely been hammered. The leading wind company in the world today, Vestas, one out of every three wind turbines in the world today produced by Denmark. Uh, Novozymes and Donesco, the two leading ethanol enzymatic companies in the world, out of Denmark. In other words, what these rules, prices, and taxes did was shape the market in Denmark that stimulated all this innovation around energy efficiency, which produced new Danish companies to do this, which then went global, and they actually ended up buying the American wind companies that went bust in the 80s when Reagan basically took the subsidies away from wind and the U.S. Congress, Democrats included. Well, they are bought by Denmark, and today they're major Denmark companies. By the way, some of those solar companies that we spawned in the 70s and 80s, they went bust also when we removed our subsidies and and taxes. They are bought by Japan. So I can't tell you how grateful the, the innovators and the corporate leaders of Japan and Denmark today are for all the money America invested in the research in wind and solar which spawned companies here, which went bust in the 80s when we removed the subsidies for them, and they were bought by Japan and Denmark. Thank you very much. One of the leading wind innovators in America, in fact, was given a Medal of Honor by the government of Denmark because basically all his technology ended up there. Have a nice day. Why I didn't wake up this morning because she didn't go to bed. You were watching the whites of your eyes been reading some old list. You smile and think how much you've changed. All the money in the world couldn't buy back those days. You pull back your curtains and the sun burns into your eyes. You watch your It's the Onion Radio News. Life jackets are issued to all Americans for some reason. This is Doyle Redland reporting. Assuring the nation that there is no need for alarm, the Office of Homeland Security issued life jackets to all U.S. citizens for some unexplained reason today. Homeland Security Director Tom Ridge made a televised address this morning. Uh, The best thing for everyone to do is simply go about their normal lives. Uh, with the life vest on, of course. Ridge went on to recommend that in addition to life jackets, citizens carry kits containing a packet of fluorescent orange marker dye, shark repellent, and three magnesium flares on their person at all times.
Despite widespread concern about climate change, annual carbon dioxide emissions from burning fossil fuels and manufacturing cement have grown 38% since 1992. But here's the surprising part. The source of emissions has shifted dramatically. Energy use has been growing slowly in developed countries like ours, more quickly in some developing countries, most notably China and India. This is from the Department of Energy. The U.S. was the largest emitter of CO2 in 1992. Now, the most recent estimates say India passed Japan in 2002, and China became the largest emitter in 2006. India is poised to pass Russia to become the third largest emitter probably this year. So don't blame us. Blame them. And in another... Um, Surprising development. Cities are being unfairly blamed for most of humanity's greenhouse gas emissions. But according to a study in the journal Environment and Urbanization, you get that, don't you? Cities are often blamed for 75 to 80 percent of emissions. But the true value is closer to only 40 percent. The potential for cities to help address climate change is being overlooked because of this area. Blaming cities for greenhouse gas emissions misses the point that cities are a large part of the solution, says the paper's author. Well-planned, <laughs> I'm sorry, well-governed <laughs> cities can provide high living standards that do not require high consumption levels and high greenhouse gas emissions. So let's just work on that. Well-planned, well-governed cities, won't you? Let me know. Shouldn't take too long. Uh, the rise in global carbon dioxide emissions last year outpaced the most dire predictions of international researchers. According to figures released this week, human-generated greenhouse gases continued to build up in the atmosphere despite international agreements and national policies aimed at curbing, curbing climate change. Last year's output was at the very high end of scenarios outlined by the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change and could translate into a global temperature rise of more than 11 degrees Fahrenheit by the end of the century. In a sense, it's a reality check, says one of the researchers. This is an extremely large number. The emissions are increasing at a rate that's faster than what the IPCC has used in their calculations. Climate change, habitat destruction, and disease threatened to wipe out over half of Europe's frog, toad, and newt species by the middle of the century, according to the Zoological Society of London. Research fellow Trent Garner said a recent study had shown warmer winters in southern England had affected the hibernation of toads, forcing them to use more of their energy reserves and resulting in them emerging from winter in poor health, survival rates among female toads were also dropping. The number one threat has been and will be habitat loss. There's also threats from pollution and introduction of new species. There's now evidence coming out that climate change will have a strong impact on amphibians. And in Greenland, the effects of global warming are painfully visible as the Greenland ice melts at an alarming rate. The ice in some places on the Greenland coast is now melting four times faster than before, says Abbas Khan, a Dane, who studies the movements of Greenland's glaciers. The glacier is in bad shape, experts warn. NASA satellite image research shows it's rapidly disintegrating. It's shrunk more than nine miles in the past five years and is now smaller than it's ever been in the 150 years of observation. According to Professor Jason Box from the De Geography Department of Ohio State, one of the Greenland glaciers may not have been as small as it is now any time in the past 6,000 years. According to 
U.N. greenhouse gases need to be stabilized at levels low enough to prevent dangerous interference with the climate, but scientists have come to realize that an even more acute danger than climate change is lurking in the world's oceans, one that's likely to be triggered by carbon levels that are modest by those standards of climate change. Ocean acidification can devastate coral reefs and other marine ecosystems. So say goodbye to that. It's something unattainable that you can't live without. Answer for me why it's religious conservatives that have been the biggest skeptics of global warming, human-caused global warming. The reason is probably because it is the religious right wing that, generally speaking, rejects the use of science, the use of empirical investigation as a tool for going against what they want as an ideological basis for law. Obviously, there were moneyed interest, corporate interests. You know, big oil uh, fought the uh, the science behind a widespread uh, belief in global warming. But at the grassroots, it wasn't big oil telling people what to believe. It was global warming skeptics in the pulpit. And I, I just uh, that was the, it was a it didn't really seem to naturally flow out of a person's conservative religious beliefs. I, I no, it was. doesn't. However, here is where you can see that religious right wingers have a vested interest in the denigration of science, because if they can achieve the ignoring of scientific data in order to disparage the truth of global warming they have already attained a scientific dodge when empirical science demonstrates something, and then they can turn around and try to dodge evolution Mm. and try to dodge other areas where science conflicts with their ideology. So using faux and phony scientific claims to disrupt the clear scientific teachings about global warming is a kind of dry-run experiment for how to get empirical science out of the way when you have an ideological axe to grind, and that same process can be transposed to something where there's a purely religious motive. Mm. So if you can get science out of the way to disparage the truth of global warming, it's an easier step to get science out of the way to disparage the truth of evolution. I'm glad that you mentioned evolution. We had Lawrence Krauss on the show last week, the well-known theoretical physicist, and he was talking about the, you know, this presidential election. Briefly, he mentioned one of the candidates, one of the four candidates, president or vice presidential, um, 
and opposition to uh, the teaching of evolution. Not all of the people running for the executive branch uh, believe in evolution. So even that's one of the issues that hangs in the balance here. Well, evolution education hangs in the balance like this. If, in fact, the president who replaces now 88-year-old Justice Stevens replaces him with a religious right-winger, then they will have on the Supreme Court for the first time ever five votes in order to uphold the mandating of creationism in the public schools, or at the very least, intelligent design. Mm. So the president who replaces 88-year-old Justice Stevens determines not only if we have church-state separation per se, abortion rights, equality for gays and lesbians, but also determines if the integrity of science education in the public schools will hold up against the religious creationist onslaught. So you're really saying all of the issues we're talking about, you're tying it to the Supreme Court. In that sense, you are a one-issue voter. The Supreme Court is the one issue you're voting on. It's your central concern. It's my central concern because if the Supreme Court falls, every issue that I care about in terms of the preservation of secularism also falls. We will not be able to preserve equal rights for gays and lesbians. We will not be able to preserve equality for the non-believer. We'll not be able to preserve scientific integrity in the public schools. Abortion rights. Abortion rights. We will not be able to preserve modern sex education. Nothing that is the product of scientific learning versus religious dogma will survive if there's a shift of even one vote on the Supreme Court. Hey there, Delilah, what's it like in New York City? I'm a thousand miles away, but girl, tonight you look so pretty. Yes, you do. Times Square can shine as bright as you. I swear it's true. Hey there, Delilah, don't you worry about the distance. I'm right there if you get lonely. Give this song another listen. Close your eyes. Listen to my voice, it's my disguise I'm by your side Oh, it's what you do to me 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 What you do to me Environmentalism is the key to our future. He could be right. If the economy gets any worse, we'll all be living in trees. Please welcome Thomas Friedman! Tom, thanks for coming back. Great to be with you, Stephen. Now, your last book was called The World is Flat, okay? Now, your new book is called Hot, Flat, and crowded. How, how, did, how did we go from flat to 
too hot, flat, and crowded. Well, you know, basically the first book, Stephen, was born in India as I tried to understand this whole phenomenon of outsourcing, how it was mm -hmm. that uh, when I called for my lost luggage, someone in India answered the phone. Mm -hmm. And yes. um, uh, what this book is really looking at is the implications of that world, the economic implications, the population implications, and the environmental implications when so many people out there can compete on this global platform. I'll tell you one of the implications. Everything on the show tonight was written by a guy in Bangalore. Oh, really? Yes. <laughs> Barry Green. Yes, but yeah, oh, absolutely. It Emailed yeah. it. Yeah. So, so what, what do you mean by, by hot and crowded? We, I understand sure. flat, like the, the global economy is we're on, we're coming to be on, on par in terms of uh, resources right. and availability and opportunities around the world. What's hot and crowded? Well, hot refers to the fact that global average temperatures have risen about uh, nearly one degree centigrade, nearly uh, three and a half Fahrenheit since the Thank Industrial you for Revolution. Thank you because I do right. not recognize right. centigrade. <laughs> no <laughs> metric measurements no. are recognized on this. I don't no. want to hear about no. centimeters, centimeters, <laughs> or anything like that, okay? No, Stephen, that may not sound like much. You know, two degrees Fahrenheit. It does not thing. sound like right. much. But actually, I run a fever the, like that most of well, the time. Well, the global climate yeah. system, the global climate system is actually a lot like your body. If your body temperature goes from 98.6 to 100.6, you don't feel so good. If it goes from 100.6 to 102.6, you go to the hospital. So does Mother Nature. <laughs> well, sir, 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 first thing I do is I pray right. that I will be healed by God. <laughs> we haven't tried that yet. Now, the thing that hot also refers to, obviously, is global warming and the many sources of it. You know, it comes from uh, homes and emitting uh, from their heating and cooling. So, it we comes should, from, so we shouldn't live in homes. No, anymore. I'm not going there. But you refer to tree. It comes from cars. Yes. Um, it comes from deforestation. 20 well, we soon won't have cars anymore. 20% of yes. global warming is, is actually from the burning and clearing of forests. So and about 8% actually comes from cattle belching. Um, yeah. Cattle belching? Is cattle that a belching, polite term? 1.3 billion cattle in the world belching issues enormous amounts of methane. Wow. So the more hamburgers I eat, the more there I solve the problem. There you go. There you go. Wow. <laughs> it's us. At this point, it's us or the cows. You didn't know. It's kill or be killed. <laughs> right. Now, um, but now global warming. This interesting thing about global warming is that I, I, I accept that it's happening because Al Gore's movie made money. Okay. <laughs> the market has spoken. Okay. It's happening. But can we, even if we could do something about it, right. can we do anything about it? Because, you know, isn't there a conservation of energy? We've released this heat. We've right. trapped this heat. How do we cool us down? Do we build a giant air conditioner on the moon and, and <laughs> blow us out? That, that energy, yeah. that heat stays here, doesn't it? it? It's trapped here actually for as, roughly as long as uh, modern human history, which is, say, about three, I mean, human history, about 3,000 years. So Sir, when you drive, are, actually, we, do are we doomed? Well... Are um, we doomed? I, you know, I, I, whenever people ask that question, I like to refer to a quote by Dana Meadows, a great environmental um, uh, teacher, who said, we have exactly enough time, Stephen, starting now. That is, if we do everything we need to do, starting now, there is a chance we can limit So this, limit second, this second we need to start? This second. This hold, second on, hold on, hold on, hold on. Okay, now we're doomed. Because right. we don't... Because <laughs> we didn't start. Right. We didn't start. <laughs> But you're welcome. No, right. But now your next book can be Hot, Flat, Crowded, and Doomed. No, no. Oh, no, I've got that. It's Hot, okay. Flat, Crowded, and Busted. Because, oh, really? Because um, it, it seems to me with this economy, the chances, this is what I'm most worried about, Stephen, mm -hmm. is how will we get the investment today in all these green technologies to make this happen at a time when our economy is flat on its back? Now, you have a concept called, uh, you, you talk about uh, China for a day. Yes. What is China for a day? Well, China for a day is a fantasy, basically. What if we had a government here? 
yes. that could actually make decisions, mm -hmm. okay, that could actually come together, Democrats and Republicans, and make a long-term plan and pursue it. Are you saying the but, Chinese do that? Yes, yeah, sometimes they do. But a that's a totalitarian regime. Mm -hmm. And it is a measure, Stephen, of the frustration that a lot of people in the Green Movement have, certainly me. So, so you okay? say that you think for one day, for one day we should have a totalitarian government where some benign person at the right. top says, this is what we do? No, it's basically what I'm saying is if only our government could get its act together and launch a green revolution with the same persistence, focus, stick-to-itiveness and direction that China does through authoritarian means. If we could only do well, that already, through de democratic means... I think means we already have a green revolution because I separate my plastics and I eat Kashi cereal. So <laughs> what more are we supposed to do, what, Thomas Friedman? What more is there? Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for listening, everybody. So here we are. It's it's officially December now, uh, officially the holiday season, and uh, and also the season of charitable giving. And you know I'm I'm not above it. Uh, I'll admit it. I'm coming to you guys, hat in hand. No, no, wait. Don't skip to the next show. Give me give me just a minute to uh, explain first. Now, although we do actually accept donations. Here at the Best of the Left podcast, uh, donation links found at bestoftheleft.com. That's actually not what I'm talking about today. Uh, today, I wanted to let you know about a fundraiser that I'm a part of that's actually for the nonprofit organization that I work for. I've mentioned it before, you know, so maybe you uh, have no idea what I'm talking about, or maybe you're tired of hearing me mention it. But I work for a nonprofit organization in the Washington, D.C. area called the Chesapeake Climate Action Network. We're totally dedicated to fighting global warming on uh, the local level in Maryland, uh, Virginia, and Washington, D.C. And then luckily, thanks to our um, you know, geographical proximity to the nation's capital, we also make an effort to, uh, to influence policy on the federal level as well. So every year... We have a fundraiser called the Keep Winter Cold Polar Bear Plunge. Obviously, the idea is that we need to raise money for our own operations so that we can continue doing the work that we do in fighting global warming in every way that we can come up with. So um, as a staff member with this organization, I obviously get uh, automatically drafted into this event. And so what we do is we go down to the Chesapeake Bay in the middle of January, strip down to our bathing suits, uh, you know, us on the staff, along with about, you know, you know, between, uh, well, the first year we did it, we had about 20 people do it. And last year we had about 300 people. And uh, what we all do is jump into the freezing cold water, jump out and try to get real warm again and, uh, and, and, for doing this, we have people sponsor us. Our friends and family, coworkers, uh, anyone we can think of, say, you know, hey, will you sponsor me to jump in freezing cold water to help save the climate? So that's that's what we do. 
it's exactly like a walkathon, uh, but as I like to describe it, uh, like a walkathon, only uh, shorter and colder. And that's exactly where all of you come in. Right on the homepage of bestoftheleft.com, I've actually posted information uh, describing the plunge and uh, with links to the event website as well as my personal fundraising page in the hopes that some of you would actually be interested in sponsoring my plunge to help support the organization I work for. Just to give a little perspective, uh, we are a nonprofit organization. Our funding comes uh, very much primarily from charitable foundations, and charitable foundations are very heavily reliant on the stock market of all things, where they keep a lot of their money, and uh, and basically, as it's been described to me, they basically put their money in the stock market and then give away the interest. Well, as you might imagine, the recent economic uh, events have been taking quite a toll on these foundations and their profits, which in turn uh, has been hampering their ability to support organizations like mine. So it makes it all that much more important that individuals step up and you know donate just a little bit of their money to help support our organization basically and and people like us because uh, when when the foundations go down uh, we get hit very hard by their inability to fund us so if you have just a few bucks that you can send our way everyone coming together you know we, we as I said we hope to have hundreds of people jumping in the water and if all of the people jumping can in turn get lots of their friends to donate then just a few bucks from every person really adds up to a substantial amount of money that helps us do what we do. So the big event is January 10th. You know, if you're in the area, you can certainly come down. And if you're a, a supporter of CCAN, we obviously encourage you to become a plunger. Um, that is not as dirty as it sounds. But, uh, you know, if, if you if you really wanted to, to step up and support the organization, sign up to jump in the water and help raise some money for us. Thanks in advance for your support. You will be hearing me continue to talk about this for the next month or so. So if you're able to support us, great. And if you're not, don't worry about it. Just bear with us. So that is it for today. Coming to you from inside the Beltway yet outside the border and conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C. My name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast coming to you from bestoftheleft.com. Fine, fine, smell black and white You took a part in picture that wasn't right Pitch burning on a shining sheet The only maker that you want to meet A dying man in a living room Whose shadow bases the floor